welcome back to the FKT Podcast, brought to you by Merrill Test Lab. I'm your host, Heather Anderson. Today we're chatting with Jenny Hoffman, who set the Women's Supported Transamerica FKT in 47 days. Join us to hear about her experiences with the challenges of running through Nebraska during corn harvest, how she handled the mental side of running 60 plus miles per day, and what she found most rewarding. Thank you, Meryl, for supporting not only this podcast, but the fastestknowntime.com website and the FKT community. Meryl invites you to put yourself and their new Skyfire 2 shoe, their newest, lightest, and fastest trail running shoe, to the test on your next adventure. It's available over at Meryl.com. Jenny, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm really, really thrilled to be able to chat with you about your Transamerica run. And I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to you, Heather, and to talk about the run. Just for our listeners who might not be familiar with it, can you maybe just give us a brief overview of the Trans Am, like where it starts and ends, like the direction, the route, just a little brief history or overview? Yeah, so Guinness defines the Transamerica run as the run between any two coastal cities that are more than 2,700 miles apart. But I think the sort of community of people who've done this, it's a small community, would consider it to be a 3,000-mile journey from one coast to the other. Um, people have been running across the country for 100 years. Actually, humans have been traversing the continent on foot for millennia. When you think about the first native settlers, the European explorers, the refugees, migrants. So, you know, there's a thousands of years of history of people traversing the continent on foot. So my journey took me from San Francisco from the Pacific Ocean to New York City to the Atlantic Ocean, and it was 3,048 miles. I'd love it if you could just give us a little bit of an overview of like what inspired you to take this on, because I know this wasn't your first go-around with it. Yeah, well, this has been something I've dreamed about since I was a child. I probably as a young child fantasized about crossing this country under my own power. And, you know, as I got older, the dream evolved. When I was young, I thought I might bike across. And then as I became a runner as an adult, I realized, oh, my gosh, it's possible to run across the country. And that was kind of an epiphany. And it's just something I've visualized forever. I started in 2019. I made it 2,560 miles from San Francisco until I had a devastating knee injury somewhere in eastern Ohio, which ended my run abruptly. I had surgery. I rehabbed. I survived the pandemic with my family. And, um, <laughs> you know, every single day throughout all of that time, I was visualizing doing it again. I just couldn't let go of it. I think, you know, my, my husband hoped that I'd gotten it out of my system, but no, the dream would not leave. Um, and I, I almost started again in 2022, but I had a hamstring injury right before. And then somehow in late summer 2023, the stars aligned the forces converged and I was able to start again. And um, thanks to a tremendous team of crew women who helped me along and emotional support from family, from friends, I made it. So that was, yeah. yes, you did. still hard to believe. I still feel like, <laughs> I still feel like who was that person who did that thing? Was that, was that me? Did I do that? It's, I, it's hard, yeah, to, it's hard mean, to believe. You've only been done for like, of what, a week or so? At this. Six days. Yeah. yeah. Six days. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, how long does it take you to process? <laughs> I mean, you know, years maybe? <laughs> yeah. Mentally anyway. Um, yeah, physically yeah. a little faster. I mean, you spent the first half of my life visualizing this and the second half of my life processing it. Obviously, you've been dreaming about it since 2019, but like, did you just kind of bring this all together at the last minute? Like, how? when did you decide, yes, this is happening this year? And how soon after that were you standing at City Hall in San Francisco? 
Yeah. So this is kind of a crazy story. I had hoped to do the TransCon this fall, and then I qualified for the Team USA um, World 24-Hour Championships, which is going to be held in Taiwan three weeks from today, I think. Um, and then I was really torn about how to prioritize my long-held dream of running across the country versus this amazing opportunity to represent the U.S. Um, in Taiwan. And, you know, I was also dealing with some minor injuries over the summer and a lot of competing priorities. So really, it was a kind of a roller coaster of decision-making over the summer, whether to go forward with this or not. Um, and ultimately, Pete Kostelnik, who has the men's record for running across the country um, from 2016, you know, he was in a very serious car accident in August, um, and we spent some time on the phone together after that. And it really kind of came to me that I, I need to seize the day while I'm healthy and fit. And, you know, this is something I've dreamed about for so long, and I can't just keep postponing it forever. So I think I finally decided to go for it the last week of August. And at that point, I didn't have a crew. I didn't have a route. I didn't have logistics. I didn't have anything. And I was incredibly lucky that um, some amazing women stepped up and were willing to crew me at the last minute and and it all worked out. And furthermore, we were not even intending to start from San Francisco. So I was intending to start from LA. I had a little bit of trauma about redoing the same route that I had done in 2019. And I thought, well, I can do the Transcon from LA to Boston instead of San Francisco to New York. It's actually almost exactly the same distance. And that would put me on a different route and I could avoid some of the really tough memories from 2019 and experience new things, new parts of the country. So I had almost planned um, that full route, and we flew to L.A., we rented the RV from L.A., we did all our shopping in L.A., we were about ready to go. Um, and one of my crew, Cinder Wolf, did some scouting of the roads around L.A. and found out that many of the roads that I had intended to run on had been taken out by Hurricane Hillary, and there was oh no gosh. way to leave L.A. on foot. Oh, so, my gosh. Oh, so my gosh. So with 24 hours notice, we made a really heart-wrenching decision to get in the RV and drive up to San Francisco. My heroic crew drove overnight to San Francisco while I slept in the back of the RV and we started at 5 a.m. in San Francisco the next morning. Oh my gosh. Wow. I have a lot of questions about all of that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, having a hurricane take out your route is like, I feel like that's just not a normal aspect of <laughs> any sort of adventure. <laughs> You know, it's funny. I was listening to your um, podcast from a couple weeks ago with Carl Saab, who just set the record on the PCT. And I noted this quote, if I wanted predictability, I would run across the U.S. on a road and everything would be perfect and predictable. And I thought, hmm, as someone who has not done that. doesn't that. resonate with my experience. <laughs> yeah, I totally understand that what you were saying about not wanting to go the exact same route, because there have been so many times on like hikes and things like that that I've done where I'm just like, thank God I never have to do that again, you know? <laughs> and it's just like, I mean, to go back and do it again. You're like, well, I spoke too soon, you know? Like, I, I definitely understand that desire to want to do a different route. So you guys had an RV. Um, you had a crew. I, I assume it wasn't the same. Was it the same crew the whole time? Like, how did that work? I had work? one amazing crew chief, Jill Yeomans, who was with me for the entire journey. And she was phenomenal and she took care of everything behind the scenes. And she shielded me from a lot of this unpredictability that I, you know, still am kind of learning about trickles out the things that happened behind the scenes that she was able to troubleshoot. And she managed the social media, the communications, dealt with all the reroutes, uh, et cetera. So she was phenomenal. 
So she she drove the RV primarily. And then I also had a smaller car where somebody would leapfrog me every three or four miles throughout the day. And that was a pretty intense job, 15 hours a day of always being there for me with my sunscreen or my food or whatever I needed. Um, so that person rotated. So I had five different people throughout the journey doing that. So at any given time, we had two people. Okay. And did you have pacers? I was almost entirely by myself. And as I approached my home turf on the East Coast in the last three days, then a bunch of friends were close enough within driving distance. So I did have a lot of friends in those last three days, but it was a very solitary journey for most of the way across the country. Wow. I would love to have you just kind of walk us through the average day. Like, where did you sleep? Maybe you can talk to us about the the cornfield bathrooms. Like, I mean, just kind of like what this experience was like day to day. Because I think we can all conceptualize, okay, you were running. But like, what was it really like? So um, we all slept in the RV every night. And I had discovered in 2019 that I didn't do very well when I set an alarm. The alarm would wake me up in the middle of my sleep cycle. And then I would just feel off for the first half of the day. So this time around, I never set an alarm. And, you know, frankly, I was so uncomfortable at night, so sore from all the running that I was waking up quite frequently anyhow. So whichever sleep cycle ended somewhere between 3 and 4 a.m., I would say, okay, it's time to get up. I would wake up, you know, at some random time, usually in that interval. And it would take me about 45 minutes to eat a banana, drink some coffee, go to the bathroom, um, do some stretching, do any necessary blister care, get my shoes on. Um, and get out the door of the RV. So I'd usually be out the door somewhere between 4 and 4.30. Um, and then I would run for 14 or 15 hours. And my crew um, would meet me roughly every three or four miles um, throughout the day, wherever they could find a turnout that was safe on whatever road we were on. And I would start my day with egg sandwiches at the first two crew stops, uh, and then move from the egg sandwich meal to the bagels or peanut butter and jelly or Pop-Tart phase of the day. Uh, and then at some point, I would transition to the junk food phase of the day. There was a lot of baked goods, cookies, muffins, um, and maybe like the last crew stop or so, we'd move on to the candy phase of the day. Um, the typical target was about 60 miles per day, but we always had to find a legal place to park the RV overnight. And we weren't necessarily parking in RV campgrounds, but we had to find a business that would give us permission to park in their parking lot. Or, you know, some sometimes we stayed in the driveways of friendly families who would allow us to park there. And, you know, the U.S. is very rural um, throughout most of the country, so it's not always easy to find a place where you have permission to stay. Um, so typically that would give us a range of, you know, three to five miles so even if my target was 60 miles, I might end up running 65 because that was the first place after 60 that we could find a safe place to park, a safe legal place to park for the night. So, you know, and at, at the time, those were really painful five miles. I was like, I didn't bargain for this. And I'd be kind of cranky and angry at my crew for not finding a, a sooner place to park. But in hindsight, it was really good because all of those bits and pieces added up and I ended up finishing a day earlier than I had expected because of all of those extra, you know, few miles at the end of every day. So then I would, you know, stumble into the RV at seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night sometimes. And my crew would have cooked me six eggs for dinner, eggs and cheese every night for dinner and a big salad with liberal peanuts. I eat a lot of peanuts in daily life and, and uh, running life. And then I would do some stretching or um, sometimes my crew would help me out with some massage and then I typically spent about half an hour a night writing my journal posts. So that was something that, you know, at times my crew pushed back on that a little bit. Like, this is 
taking away from your sleep or your running? Why are you putting so much time into this? But it was really important to me to remember what I've done so that I have this memory for a lifetime and also to share it because I feel so lucky to have this journey. I wanted to be able to share it with followers who didn't have this opportunity. And then I'd go to sleep. So slept about six hours a night usually. At the end, we cut it a little shorter to try to get those last few miles in, but pretty consistently six hours. Yeah, I I noted the detail of your posts and I was just like, they were all written in the first person. I was like, I feel like she was actually writing these and I was amazed by that because I don't know for me like when I've done long things I half the time was falling asleep while eating like there was no time to be like making sense (laughs) and writing things down well how did you remember your journeys Heather I mean I've read your books and they were wonderful and detailed how did you remember that if you didn't write it down I have an annoyingly good memory (laughs) kind of the next thing I like to kind of talk about a little bit is like the route because it sounds like you ran directly to wherever the RV was going to be parked for the night. They weren't like picking you up and driving you somewhere and then driving you back. So I assume you kind of like were sometimes having to run into like a neighborhood because you said sometimes you stayed in people's driveways and things like that. So was your route kind of fluid and developing as it went along or did you have it kind of predetermined? And also just like your route in general, like were you mainly on like U.S. highways? Like were you aiming to do like you know, things that were the most direct. Yeah, so we started from the route that Pete had taken in his 2016 Transcon, and he was kind enough to share all of those files with my husband, who did the detailed routing. And we just adapted it a little bit. It's largely the same route, but, you know, made some personal choices. I prefer to run on dirt roads when I can. So sometimes we would take a a parallel dirt road as opposed to a two-lane highway. And we didn't intentionally run through neighborhoods, but, you know, in the vast majority of the country, it's so rural that people's driveways are right on the two-lane highways. So, you know, when I stayed in someone's driveway, it would be a driveway right on the two-lane highway that was on our route. And um, most of the time, we found places right on the route, businesses or or driveways or turnouts. uh, And there was only two times where we had to stake out where, uh, you know, put a mark on the road where I had ended and then drive to a location where it was safe to park the RV. And I hated doing that. It took extra time and energy. It stressed me out. Um, I like being able to just stumble into the RV and then stumble out the next morning. So I would run extra miles to prevent having to stake out. Right. Did you run into any unexpected issues with being on the road, like closures or uh, anything like that that you had to kind of adapt to on the fly? Yeah, there were a couple of road closures. Often we found that even if the road was closed, if we talked to the construction workers, they would often let the pedestrian, they would let me through, and then the crew vehicle could find a detour and, and work around and meet me somewhere on the other side. So no, that that happened half a dozen times at least. And it was always a little stressful for me because I'd get to this detour sign and I wouldn't know, am I going to have to actually run an extra five miles out of my way to get around? But usually the Construction workers were pretty excited about the journey and willing to let me through, you know, wanted to take a picture, sign a witness statement. So that was fun. It was really, it was great to have the opportunity to meet so many people along the way. And I think that that's maybe a difference in running on the roads across America versus running on a trail is that I'm meeting a diversity of Americans, you know, run through the the deserts and the ranches and the cornfields and cement factory and, you know, the small towns and and the big cities and meeting people who are just going about their daily lives, not just people who chose to be out there on that trail at that time. 
So that was really a, a joyful part of this run. Yeah, I would think that that would be really interesting. And and going east-west, I mean, you're seeing basically almost every region. I feel like the country kind of breaks up into four types of terrain. There's the mountains and the desert and the prairies and the urban areas. And And I spend very little time comparatively in urban areas, but the mountains and the desert and the prairies are all very distinct um, and have you know, distinct challenges, whether it's the sun or the elevation or the dust um, from the harvest, you know, the spraying corn from the John Deere trucks. Yeah, it was it was a, a very diverse set of challenges crossing the country. And I think even though I ran the same route um, this time as I ran in 2019, and I, I was so fearful of having the same set of experiences because it's hard. This whole thing is really, it's wonderful. And I feel incredibly blessed to have had this experience, but it's also really hard. And there's a lot of painful memories <laughs> from all the hard parts in 2019. So I was really afraid about kind of reliving some of those painful memories that I'd kind of filed away and boxed up. But I was a little bit out of sync. So I would see the different places at different times of day and different weather and different lighting and even slightly different times of year. Although I started very close to the same time of year, Last time I passed through Nebraska and it was quiet and peaceful. And this time I passed through Nebraska and it was peak harvest season. And the roads were completely full of John Deere trucks with all their fangs sticking out the sides, blades ready to cut the corn and the semis that spew corn seeds. You feel like you're in a hailstorm when you run by one of those semis because the corn is being spit at you, right? You know? yeah. So I got sprayed by a fertilizer truck. Oh, no. Right? So all of that was you know, a different set of challenges this time. That is definitely something, you know, people have asked me because I've done some of the long trails multiple times. And they're just like, oh, why do you do it again? I'm like, well, it's never the same experience. Like, you know, it's always slightly different. You're you're with different people and like the weather is different. You're there at a different time of day. Like it's the trail is the same, you know, but everything that goes around that to form the actual experience and the memory you have is different. So you mentioned you did this at a similar time of year. Is Is there a specific tradition or a reason why you've gone kind of like late, late summer, early fall both times? I think the weather is usually nice in the fall. So I, I love running in the fall. I'm not a great hot weather runner. Some people are good at that. And it's really hard for me to run in the heat. So I love the fall because it's gradually cooling down. So it's getting a little bit easier as I go as opposed to harder as I go. Um, I'm also a teacher. So the summer is the time when I can really put the pedal to the metal and train hard. Um, and this fall I had a sabbatical, so I was able to take the semester off from teaching to do the run after having trained through the summer. And I guess most of the records have been set in the fall, and it's probably still about the weather, and you have to kind of strike the balance because you need to get through the Rockies before the snow, but you don't necessarily want to be going through the Nevada desert in the middle of the summer. So I think most most of us who've really tried to do a speed run across the U.S. has started around the same time of year. And did you run into any sort of like bad weather crossing the Rockies? No, I was really lucky in the Rockies. I had great weather in the Rockies. I did have hail and thunder and lightning in Tioga Pass and Yosemite, um, but that was you know relatively short-lived. So that wasn't a major challenge. And I was really lucky. I mean, I guess this is an advantage that I have running across the country on roads versus you doing your hike on the trails is that when I, I was at 9,000 something feet when the, the lightning really became intense and my crew vehicle was able to find me and I sat out that storm in the crew vehicle where I was safe. Um, and then my, my crew, Sydney, they pushed me out of the 
the door and they said, okay, the lightning stopped. And it's like, but the hail hasn't stopped. And they said, nope, the lightning has stopped. Out you go. So over the past, I went in the hail, but at least the lightning had stopped. I, yeah. Yeah, that's nice to have that that safe uh, safety blanket there to a vehicle to be in and sit out a storm. Did you have a, a favorite? Well, first of all, how many states did you end up running across? Twelve states. Well, if you count Manhattan. Okay. Yeah, I was in Manhattan for 12 miles. So. Right. Okay. And so what what were your favorite sections or favorite states? Like the things that you enjoyed the most? That's funny because I have different favorites in the different time from 2019 to now because, as I said, the weather was different. Even my body was different at different times. So in 2019, I loved Nebraska. It was just peaceful. It was relaxing to have a little bit more rolling you know, low elevation after having just passed through the Rockies. And Nebraska was my kind of highest daily mileage state. And this time around, Nebraska was by far the most challenging state for me because of the harvest and the dust and the headwinds and the fertilizer trucks. And and I think the most beautiful day was a pass, high pass in Utah. And I would say that was definitely the most beautiful day, both in 2019 and this time. But in this time, I was really sick going through the mountains. I had a I picked up a cold sometime in the first week and, you know, having pushing my body so hard, it just took weeks to get over this simple cold. And so I was just coughing a lot at the high altitude, really kind of struggling to get my breath a lot more than I had in 2019. So even though I could appreciate the beauty of this Utah Pass, I was also really suffering at that time. So it's hard to disentangle the environment from you know, what's going on in my head and my body at the time. Um, I think that the most relaxing and enjoyable days I had this year were probably in Iowa. Um, you know, kind of got through the peak harvest in Nebraska. Iowa's green, beautiful rolling hills. And it just felt a little calmer. And then Pennsylvania also finally got my fall running weather, those crisp days um, when the sky is clear, the leaves are beautiful. But we, you know, we have a beautiful country. There is beauty in every state. And I just feel really grateful that I could enjoy it at the speed of a pedestrian. Yeah. And you mentioned Pennsylvania and like I'm in Pennsylvania and I'm really, as we were talking about before we started, really sad that I missed you. Um, But I feel like, wasn't it pretty rainy maybe for the first part of Pennsylvania? Because you definitely were here at peak season. But I mean, I remember just being like, when is it going to stop raining? Yeah, I did get dumped on for, there was one day that was really bad that I was dumped on the whole day and I was cold and wet and miserable. And, you know, it's raining so hard, you can't even change your clothes because you're going to be wet again in another minute anyhow. Um, but I had two days of light rain that, you know, it's just this kind of misty, you know, um, kind of makes everything blurry, but in a in a soft, nostalgic sort of way. I don't know. So that was okay. And then I had two days of beautiful, crisp yeah. sunshine weather. So five days in Pennsylvania. Good. I'm glad it, it was redeemed at the end and you got yes. your beautiful fall. That's because you, you definitely ran through some of the nicest parts of Pennsylvania. So I'm definitely glad you got some some of the nice fall. I think crossing the Allegheny River, that was really just amazing. I loved that part. A couple of days ago, I went up and I, I did a 50-mile bike ride along the Allegheny. It's so lovely up there. So you mentioned like not changing your clothes because they would get soaked. So this is a very practical question, but most RVs do not have washing machines. So how is your laundry getting done? So Jill just stopped at a laundromat once a week. Okay. And would do the laundry. So she was driving the RV, which meant that she was 
on the job in the morning. And I confess, she was also doing some crewing from the RV in the morning. It was nice to have a traveling porta potty in the morning um, for the first few stops of the day. But then after, you know, the 8,000 calories had primarily cleared from the system from the previous day, then she had the day ahead of her while I was running when she wasn't crewing me um, and she could do laundry or, you know, deal with whatever logistics needed to be dealt with, do grocery shopping. And, you know, there's a lot that she had to deal with to keep the train moving during the day. Yeah, I'm sure there was. Okay, so during that day, like being crewed during the day, the car was what was leapfrogging you. It wasn't the car and the RV both leapfrogging you. Okay. Right. So the the RV would leapfrog me for just like the first couple hours. Yeah. I didn't need the RV during the day. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Because I was just like, I know there's stuff that has to happen. And like, if they're, they're just following you all day, when is it happening? <laughs> One of my big fears whenever I do a hike where there's like a significant roadwalk is just like the safety of it. And so that's one of the things when I look at what you just did, and it's just like thousands of miles of being on a road, you know, where there's traffic and, you know, farm equipment and maybe loose dogs. Like, how do you say stay? How do you stay safe? Like, what what precautions are you taking? Did you have any close calls? Like, can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I mean, it, it there was a lot of traffic and it did feel like I had a lot of close calls. But you know, some people asked, what were you listening to? And I didn't listen to anything the whole time because I had to be so alert. I wanted to be able to hear the traffic at all times. Um, so it was really kind of silent in my head, but um, trying to pay attention. And some of the scariest parts are when you're on a two-lane highway with a narrow shoulder um, and there's rumble stripping in the shoulder. So you don't necessarily want to run in the shoulder because that'll tear up your shoes and mess with your ankles. So you're trying to run the white line, which is the only flat part of the road. Um, and then somebody will come from behind and pass. So on a two-lane highway, you know, I'm facing traffic, but if somebody comes from behind me to pass, then they're whizzing right by my right ear. So that's where I had to be just very alert all the time and paying attention to when is that yellow line dashed versus when is that yellow line solid. And when I would see the yellow line get dashed, then I would try to move over a little bit onto the rumble stripping. Um, and when I see that the yellow line was solid, then I felt like, okay, that's safer. Nobody's going to pass me from behind. I can run the white line. But always listening for cars behind me. As far as dogs, I did have a dog adventure uh, in Nebraska, somewhere on a dirt road, I picked up a couple of dogs who were very excited to join my journey, so excited that they followed me all the way to the end of the dirt road. Um, they followed me across the train tracks. They followed me onto a paved road beyond that. They followed me in total um, almost six or seven miles, and I could not get rid of And they were not harmful to me, but they were unleashed, no collars with identifying information, uh, and they were all over the road. They were, you know, checking out roadkill on one side, on the other side, chasing bunnies. I had to, you know, visit a cornfield. They were interested in sniffing that out, too. I couldn't get rid of them. And and it's a, a narrow two-lane highway with lots of traffic, no shoulder. And the trucks and everything, they're looking at me like, what kind of an irresponsible human is this to take her dogs out on a two-lane highway? And I was like, they're not my dogs. You know, and the cars are so eager to not hit the dogs. They're swerving all over and almost hitting me instead of the dogs. So... I learned from that that um, people would, would rather hit a human than hit a dog. Oh, my. Um, so <laughs> I, we did eventually, uh, the RV um, happened to pass, saw the dogs, 
and saw the predicament I was in. And uh, so Jill stopped and lured the dogs into the RV with Rice Krispie treats and then called the sheriff, who then came to pick up the dogs and try to figure out what to do with them after that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, so yeah, a lot of I would say, um, you know, I don't think that running across the U.S. on roads is predictable. No, um, not at all. Any more than running on a on a trail. Yeah. There's a lot a lot that can happen whether you're on roads or trails. Absolutely. I did carry pepper spray through the mountains. I was concerned about the mountain lions because I had encountered a mountain lion in 2019. Um, and luckily at that time, there was enough traffic that just as I was beginning to be scared, a truck came by and the mountain lion retreated back into the woods again. But this time I carried pepper spray, but I didn't have to use it. Um, and, you know, some of the, unfortunately, there's some, sometimes you have to be worried about the people too, right? I think most... 99.99% of all the humans that I encountered were wonderful and friendly and generous, but you know, some people felt that there should not be pedestrians on their roads um, and felt the roads belonged to the cars. So that was a challenge too. But yeah, I don't know. I guess I just, I feel really lucky that it all worked out. You're right, that there there are dangers from cars. A lot of people are very friendly and they swing wide around and give me space. And a lot of truckers actually seemed to know who I was. We had a, um, a QR code on the crew vehicle so people could look up what was going on. You know, why was this vehicle parked in this random turnout? And who is this person who's running on this highway? Um, and then a lot of people, I guess, were curious and looked it up. And then they would swing around, drive by again and cheer for me. So that was really fun. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of those same experiences when I've had to be on roads with you know, some people are very generous with sharing the road. Some people think you shouldn't be on the road if you're not in a car. And um, I definitely thought that your dog story was going to end with, and now I have two dogs. Um, I I was pretty focused on getting myself from point A to point B. I tried to ignore the dogs, but those dogs were impossible to ignore. (laughs) Right. Impossible to ignore. It sounds like they made it very difficult. But you mentioned that the RV saw them and the predicament you were in and then helped does that mean you didn't have a way to communicate with your crew throughout the day? You didn't have like a, a cell phone or walkie-talkie or anything like that to be in touch? No, I tried to carry as little as possible. So I was carrying my Garmin InReach Mini tracker. But other than that, and I had a, always had an emotional support Rice Krispie treat in my back pocket um, <laughs> just in case. But I carried very little. Okay. Occasionally when we were passing through cities, I would grab my phone and I would carry it. But for the most part, I was on my own. Mm. You mentioned the tracker, um, and earlier you mentioned witness statements. Can you talk a little bit about just that? Uh, maybe the tracker was just so your crew would know where to find you. But um, can you just talk about the documentation process for this? Yeah, I think both FKT and Guinness um, require some kind of real-time documentation for these efforts. So the tracker uh, was a Garmin device that broadcast my location every 10 minutes to a website. I think it's shared.garmin slash Run. USA maybe. Um, so a lot of friends and and followers could check up on me wherever I was. I even had somebody who messaged. So the tracker could also receive incoming messages, which was really wonderful. It was a source of inspiration for me sometimes to get this little noise that the tracker makes when somebody sends me a text message and people would check out my progress and they'd send me a, hey, good job, keep going, you got this kind of messages. That was nice. And occasionally I'd get the message like, oh, I see that you're Location point is in a cornfield right now. What are you doing in that cornfield? So that was always amusing, too. Um, for for Guinness, um, there's an additional requirement of getting two witness statements per day. 
So throughout the journey, we try to find a gas station or, you know, somebody would pull over at a stop just because they were curious about our QR code and we'd get them to sign a document of saying that they had seen me running. And there was one day that we actually couldn't even get any witness statements because there's a 169-mile stretch of road between Tonopah and Ely, Nevada that's just straight road through the desert. And there's nothing, no towns, no gas stations, no turns, no nothing, just 169 miles straight through the desert. So on that day, we failed to get witness statements. But um, we wrote a little apology to Guinness and explained the situation. So hopefully that'll be okay. I wore two watches the whole time. So I had duplicate GPX tracks just in case because there were a couple of times when one or the other of the watches didn't perform as expected. So I always had at least one good track for each day. How long does it take in us to process whether this meets their requirements? Do you know? I don't know. I haven't even submitted yet. The documentation is so intense for Guinness. I mean, I really appreciate the little bit more laid back attitude of the FKT site because I submitted all my GPX tracks and they said, hey, congrats. And I said, thank you very much. You know, it's kind of funny because I think that the GPX tracks probably are the best documentation you can have. I think it's probably pretty hard to fake the GPX track at that speed. Um, whereas witness statements, those seems like it seems like a witness statement would be very easy to fake. But Guinness requires the witness statements, so you know I have to scan them all and put them all on a table. And Guinness requires video um, from the start and the finish of every day. And I, again, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me because I could very easily video myself starting and then go sit in a coffee shop all day and then video myself finishing, right? Um, whereas the GPX track really tells the story, but. I think it's going to be probably several more weeks of effort on my part to put together all of the stuff that Guinness requires um, and submit it. And then if I pay them a lot of money, they'll process it quickly. And if I don't, they might take three years. Wow. They took three years to process Sandra Feline's record. Someone else could do it in three years. I know. I know. And I know people who were interested. A couple of them came out and ran with me yeah. just to see what it was like. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the, that's part of the sport. Um, sure, records are made to be broken, and I'm happy to share information. Yeah, absolutely, advice, whatever it's worth, you know, from my experience. But I think everybody's experience is going to be different because my experience in 2019 and 2023 was very different, even on the same route. Mm -hmm. And individuals are so different, so it's like your experience is your experience, you know, and the way you do things is the way you do things that works for you. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's the way other people are going to experience or want to do things. I'm kind of curious about, so you didn't really have pacers. You didn't have a phone. Obviously, you were seeing your crew every three or four miles, but you were mostly alone through this. And so, like, I just wonder if you can just speak to the mental aspects of just staying focused for, you know, 47 days on this task and for, like, 15 hours a day or more every day. I know from what I've done that there's a, this tremendous amount of intrinsic motivation that has to be there. And so I just want to know, like, kind of what your strategies were, how you handled that, what the challenges of that were for you. Yeah, I did find it really challenging to be alone for so long every day. And you know, my mood fluctuated a lot. And, and there were times that it was really hard and I was really sad. And when the miles felt absolutely endless and I was looking at my watch, like, how far have I come? Oh, 0 0.1 miles. How far have I come? Oh, yeah, another 0 0.1 miles, right? So there were days that just dragged and dragged and dragged. But I, I kept coming back to how much I've wanted this and how long I've wanted this and what it was going to be like at the finish when I saw my friends and my family and, and had finally achieved this thing that I've wanted for so long. And I think 
you know, I never really seriously considered quitting the entire time because I knew how much the people around me had invested in me and particularly my crew who had been working so hard throughout the journey to provide everything I needed to keep going. And you know, there was no way, no way I would let them down um, by not continuing to put one foot in front of the other. And, and so, you know, what did I think about all that? Sometimes I thought about important, deep things and people. And, um, and I thought about how I was going to write up my experiences of the day. But sometimes I thought about what am I going to eat at the next cruise stop? And, you know, mundane things like that. And I could break it down into, okay, at the next cruise stop, I'm going to have a chocolate chip cookie. And the one after that, I'm going to have a butterscotch cookie. And then I'm going to have a cinnamon pop tart. And I kind of plan out my little mini meals throughout the day. So that occupied maybe an embarrassing fraction of my brain power as well. Yeah, you know you're doing it right when like food is 90% of what you think about. <laughs> my next question, and maybe it's too soon because you haven't had time to really process this, but I, I'd love to know if you have had some time to think about it, what your biggest takeaway from this whole experience was. Yeah, I think that my biggest takeaway will continue to evolve, but there's a couple. Um, you know, one really came in the last few miles when I finally made it to the George Washington Bridge. And as I ran from the George Washington Bridge to New York City Hall, it's about 12 miles down the Hudson River Greenway. Um, and I had friends who had come from every part of my life, a friend from kindergarten, friends from different places I've lived, friends from different jobs that I've held, friends from my college crew team. And I just kind of felt like the Pied Piper with this growing pack of people behind me. And it was perfect weather, you know, high 40s in New York City at 10 o'clock at night. The lights are beautiful. And it was just this absolutely magical moment that felt like the most beautiful moment culminating my 45 years of my life so far. And I was so intensely grateful for this moment. And I thought everybody should have a moment like that. So the universe has has gifted me this moment. What can I do from this point forward to help other people realize their dreams so that they can experience a moment like that too? It was just so magical. That's what I'm kind of sitting with right now is how how can I take this platform or, you know, this experience that I've had and share it in a way that enables or empowers or motivates other people to seek out their moment too. Yeah. I think that there's other lessons as well. I mean, running through the vast expanse of the United States, um, as somebody who's lived in coastal cities my whole life, uh, it's really eye-opening how much of our country is corn, right? 27 days of cornfields. Um, and seeing all of the hardworking farmers and ranchers uh, and truckers, factory workers who make the goods and the foods that fuel our country. Um, so I think I have a lot of appreciation for that now. And, you know, I, I would love for all coastal city dwellers to have that appreciation for the diversity of Americans that make our country work. Um, and a little more uh, mutual respect in this very polarized political environment that we live in right now. Yeah, so, so I guess those are two things I'm sitting with, is the appreciation for the diversity of Americans and the just trying to figure out how to give back so that other people can have a moment like I had. 
That is a great way to end this podcast. It's been fabulous talking with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was super fun to talk to you too. Thank you so much, Heather. Thanks again, Jenny, for coming on the show. You can read about her FKT on the website, fastestknowntime.com, and follow her adventure on Facebook, Run Jenny Run USA. Thanks again to Merrill Test Lab for supporting the show. Be sure to check out their new Skyfire 2 shoe at merrill.com.